Hello everyone, welcome back to The Layman's Historian, episode 20, So It Begins. Last time, we concluded with the life of Pyrrhus of Epirus, the Hellenistic monarch who ruled a kingdom the size of modern-day Albania and still went toe-to-toe with both Rome and Carthage at the same time. Today, we will look at the fallout resulting in the wake of Pyrrhus' departure from Italy in 275 BC. Following Pyrrhus's retirement from the scene after his defeat at the Battle of Beneventum, Carthage and Rome were left face to face. Only the Strait of Messina, barely two miles wide at its narrowest point, separated these two colossal giants from each other. Carthage, a child of Phoenicia, had risen from an exiled group of colonists under Dido to become the queen of the Mediterranean. Gold overflowed from her coffers and ports. Her navy was unrivaled upon the sea, and thousands of mercenaries flocked to her banners, greedy for steady pay and the spoils of war. The Carthaginians commanded an empire which stretched from the borders of Egypt to Spain and included Sardinia, Corsica, the Balearics, and western Sicily, all vital strategic bases for her naval operations. Her merchants traveled to all corners of the Mediterranean world. Her engineers had turned the land surrounding the capital into a veritable garden, and the city of Carthage herself, with her towering walls, her massive public buildings, and her ingenious harbor, sat as the jewel of the Carthaginian crown. Across the sea, Rome stood as an upstart challenger to the supremacy Carthage had enjoyed for nearly three centuries. Born in battle and blood, Rome had clawed her way to the top of the Italian food chain by sheer force of will. Her conquest of Italy, remarkable as it was, had involved a long series of brutal, protracted conflicts against proud and warlike neighbors. Since the days of her founding, Rome had seen both mighty triumphs and horrific defeats. But even in her darkest moments, Rome responded to catastrophe by raising new armies to carry on the fight. Every Roman was a soldier, and Rome's seemingly inexhaustible supply of manpower, combined with a practical grasp of warfare and good old true Roman grit, made her a relentless force in Mediterranean affairs. In reviewing the achievements of these two great peoples, I feel to a certain extent like an announcer at a boxing ring, reading off the stats and accolades of each contestant as they measure each other up in their respective corners. I'm not the first to think so, though. As we remember from the last episode, Pyrrhus, despite his strong initial showing, was forced to make a dignified withdrawal from his campaign in Sicily due to his less-than-tactful handling of the local Sicilian city-states. The Greek biographer Plutarch recounts that as Pyrrhus watched the coastline of Sicily fade from view, he remarked to his officers, What a wrestling ground we are leaving, my friends, for the Carthaginians and the Romans. However inevitable the First Punic War seems to us now, in hindsight, before Pyrrhus's coming, 
there would have seemed to be no need for Carthage and Rome to come to blows. Rome was a land-based power who, as we shall see, did not possess a single fleet at the start of the First Punic War. So there was no obvious reason why she should clash with the naval hegemony of Carthage. Further, though Rome was an intrinsically militaristic society and constantly embroiled in conflicts with the various Etruscan, Samnite, and Gallic peoples of Italy, Carthage was primarily focused on trade and mostly sought to use her military to secure her trade routes. War, after all, was an expensive endeavor, and doubtless many of the profit-sensitive Carthaginians viewed it as a wasteful and unnecessary expense if entered into heedlessly. Besides these factors, Carthage and Rome had had a history of cooperating with each other. The Greek historian Polybius states that he found copies of four separate treaties between Carthage and Rome in the library at Rome. As we discussed in previous episodes, the first three treaties outlined the territories Carthage and Rome controlled and set the boundaries between them, as well as affording Roman and Carthaginian merchants the same rights and privileges in each other's capital. In support of this, archaeological and linguistic evidence seemed to suggest that there was a significant Carthaginian merchant presence in Rome and other Latin cities during this time. The fourth treaty consisted of the alliance of convenience against Pyrrhus during his wars in Italy and Sicily. Although there are nearly no records of Roman and Carthaginian troops acting in tandem against Pyrrhus besides one isolated incident, it is likely that the Carthaginian navy provided logistical support to the Roman land armies in Italy. Carthage had also sought to conciliate the Romans through diplomatic overtures from time to time. The Roman historian Livy reports that when the Romans won a triumphant victory over the Samnites, the Carthaginians sent a delegation bearing a solid golden crown to congratulate them. The Romans were so pleased by the gift that they placed it in their most prestigious temple, that of Jupiter Optimus Maximus on the Capitoline Hill. Additionally, before Carthage was drawn into the Pyrrhic War by Pyrrhus's invasion of Sicily, the Carthaginians offered a fleet of 120 warships to aid the Romans against Pyrrhus in Italy, but the Romans declined their help. These and other overtures of cooperation would make one think that Rome and Carthage could be on good, if not friendly, terms following Pyrrhus's retreat from Italy in 275 BC. However, in the intervening 11 years between the end of the Pyrrhic War and the start of the First Punic War, things changed. As soon as they saw the back of Pyrrhus, the one-time savior of the Western Greeks, the Romans wasted no time in subduing the rest of the Greek city-states in Lower Italy. Tarentum, the city who had ruined things for everybody else, by bringing the wrath of the Romans down on southern Italy, fell in 270 BC. Soon after, the machine-like Roman protocol for newly conquered territory swung into action. Roads were built connecting Magna Graecia to the capital to allow for the better flow of trade or armies 
as the situation required. The war booty captured from wealthy Greek cities was spent to endow lavish public buildings in Rome, as well as update its infrastructure. Within a few years of the fall of Tarentum, the Romans were firmly entrenched in southern Italy. With the western Greeks firmly placed on the sidelines following the conquest of Magna Graecia, all eyes shifted to see what would happen next. Curiously enough, though they had feared the Roman advance initially, many of the western Greeks threw in their lot wholeheartedly with the Romans, once their hopes of salvation from Epirus vanished. For many years, numerous Roman senators had been deeply interested in Greek art, philosophy, and culture, and the Romans in general saw themselves as cultural allies to the Greeks. Though the Romans never went so far as to consider themselves Greeks in name, and were always careful to maintain their separate identity, by the advent of the First Punic War, they had begun to see themselves as belonging to the civilized side of the world alongside the Greeks, as opposed to the barbarian realm into which as we remember from previous episodes, outsider civilizations such as Carthage were placed. This cultural bond was strengthened due to the legend of the founding of Rome by the Trojan prince Aeneas. Although ironically, the Trojans would have been considered barbarians by earlier Greeks, by Hellenistic times, the Trojans had been endowed with many of the same characteristics and virtues as their Greek neighbors. The Romans embraced this tradition enthusiastically, since, while it allowed them to enjoy a portion of past Hellenic prestige, it also enabled them to maintain their own distinct identity. This supposed Trojan heritage had been exploited by Pyrrhus when he landed in Italy. As we remember from the last few episodes, Pyrrhus claimed descent from none other than the Greek hero Achilles. In his war with Rome, Pyrrhus instituted an ingenious propaganda campaign, styling himself as Achilles Reborn, waging a second Trojan War against the survivors of Troy. Once Pyrrhus was gone, however, the Greeks reconciled themselves to the reality of the situation by emphasizing their shared heritage with the Romans through Aeneas and the Trojans, something that the Romans doubtless encouraged since they always wished to be seen as belonging to the civilized side of the world, as defined by the Greeks. The growing sense of a cultural Roman-Greek coalition against the barbarian world can be seen in the enthusiasm with which the Romans adopted the cults of the Greek hero Hercules, a demigod whose journeys covered much of southern Italy and Sicily, and who thus could be seen as paving the way for future Roman rule. Although this idea of the civilized Romans and Greeks versus the barbarian Carthaginians was not the sole cause of the First Punic War, its prevalence among the Romans likely explains the suspicion and distrust with which the Romans viewed the Carthaginians. Besides this, the political realities of two great and culturally distinct empires becoming close neighbors contributed to the explosive situation. As we have already seen, during their constant feuding, the Sicilian city-states had a long history of playing regional powers against each other. 
and it seemed to be only a matter of time before friction would develop due to some local dispute between the squabbling cities of Sicily. Any reservations the Romans may have had in engaging the sprawling Carthaginian hegemony was mitigated by the fact that the Romans had proven themselves capable soldiers in the war with Pyrrhus, while the Carthaginian army's performance had been decidedly lackluster. Like most great wars, the First Punic War began through a combination of several small, local events which culminated into full-scale conflict. The spark came in 265 B.C., a mere 11 years after the close of the Pyrrhic War. In order to follow the sequence of events, I'd recommend you take a look at the map on my website. You will find a link in the description. As we discussed in the last episode, the Sicilian city-state of Masana was occupied by a troublesome band of mercenaries known as the Mamertines. Hailing from the warlike tribes dwelling in Campania in southern Italy, these men had been employed by Agathocles of Syracuse. But when Agathocles died in 289 BC, these soldiers were left without a paymaster. Instead of returning to Italy, they roamed the Sicilian countryside until they came across the city of Masana in the northwestern corner of Sicily. There, the citizens welcomed the mercenaries into their homes. Unfortunately for them, once the mercenaries saw the wealth of the city and the peacefulness of the inhabitants, they began to plot to make themselves masters of Masana. In the night, the mercenaries rose up and murdered their male host and divided the women and children among themselves. They then set themselves up as rulers of the city, renaming themselves the Mamertines, meaning sons of Mamers, a Latin war god equivalent to the Roman Mars. Not content with their treacherous and bloody takeover, the Mamertines launched raids across Sicily, drawing the ire of both the Carthaginians and the Syracusans. Meanwhile, the Pyrrhic War was in full swing in Italy. The Greek city of Regium, terrified at Pyrrhus's approach, requested a garrison of Roman troops to protect them against the invaders. The Romans willingly complied and sent a band of 4,000 soldiers under a Latin ally named Decius to hold the city. Decius was a companion like the Mamertines, and since Regium sat nearly directly across the strait facing Messana, he decided to imitate the deeds of his cousins across the water. Once inside the city, Decius instigated his men to rise up and seize the city for themselves. The men eagerly followed their commander's lead, killing all the male inhabitants and taking their wives and children for themselves. They made an alliance with the Mamertines to secure each other's flank before settling in to enjoy their ill-gotten gains. This time, though, the Romans would not stand for such a betrayal. At the time, they were embroiled in their war with Pyrrhus, but they earmarked the ex-Roman soldiers of Regium to be dealt with later. Following Pyrrhus's retreat in 275 BC, the Romans immediately besieged Regium, and after a bloody siege, 
captured the city. All the survivors from the ex-Roman garrison were marched to Rome in shame, to be publicly flogged and beheaded as a warning to other would-be traitors. Before this could happen to him, Decius committed suicide, and Regium was restored as a Roman ally. With the loss of their ally on the mainland, the Mamertines began to be hard-pressed by the Syracusans, who were enjoying a resurgence of power under their new ruler, Hiero II. Hiero had been a former general under Pyrrhus in Sicily, and when Pyrrhus left, the Syracusans kept him on as a commander in order to deal with the Mamertine threat. After defeating the Mamertines in pitched battle at Malay, Hiero had besieged them within Masana. Desperate, the Mamertines appealed simultaneously to the Romans and Carthaginians to aid them against the Syracusan threat. The Carthaginians were the first to answer the call, and sent a fleet and a small land force to garrison Masana. Not wishing to face the brunt of the Carthaginian attack alone, Hiero retired to Syracuse. Despite his failure to take Masana, his fellow Syracusans nonetheless acclaimed him as king. Back in Rome, the government remained deadlocked over what to do about the Mamertine offer. On the one hand, the senators felt that to aid the Mamertines right after they had made a public example of the ex-soldiers from Regium would be hypocritical since the Mamertines had committed the exact same treasonous takeover in Masana. On the other hand, many Romans feared that if Carthage maintained control of Masana and conquered the rest of Sicily, Italy would become surrounded and Rome rendered vulnerable since she had no navy. Although we are not certain of the Roman thought process at this time, the accusation that Carthage had plans to conquer Sicily and afterwards Italy flies in the face of the typical Carthaginian mode of operation, emphasizing strategic involvement to maintain the status quo. Thus, the Carthaginian garrisoning of Masana likely had more to do with Carthage's desire to curtail the growing power of Syracuse than a grand plan for an invasion of Italy. Regardless, the Romans remained seriously concerned about having a Carthaginian army just a few miles from their shores. When the vote was put to the people to decide, the citizens, eager for war booty, voted to aid the Mamertines. The citizens were enrolled in the legions and a force dispatched under Appius Claudius Cadex to Regium. Hearing of the approach of the Romans, the Carthaginians stationed a fleet in the Strait of Messina to prevent their crossing. Despite this, one of the Roman tribunes, Gaius Claudius, snuck across to Messana by night and encouraged the Mamertines to eject the Carthaginian garrison. Encouraged by the Roman response, the Mamertines enthusiastically drove out the Carthaginian garrison and prepared to receive the Romans into the city. In the meantime, a skirmish broke out between a group of Roman troops crossing in small ships and the Carthaginian war fleet. Several Roman ships were captured, but the Carthaginian commander Hanno 
fearing to be blamed for starting a war with the Romans, offered to return the ships and prisoners and make peace. When the Romans rejected these conciliatory gestures, Hanno responded haughtily that not only would he prevent the Romans from crossing into Sicily, but he would not allow them to even wash their hands in the sea. Despite this proud boast, the Romans somehow managed to cross on a makeshift flotilla of boats to the joy of the Mamertines. Hanno took refuge in the citadel of Masana, but was captured soon after. The Romans allowed him and his men to leave the city unharmed, but later, the luckless Hanno was crucified by the Carthaginians for both his lack of sense and his lack of courage. Panicked by Roman intervention in their age-long quarrel, Carthage and Syracuse set aside their differences and quickly formed a defensive alliance. However, both the Syracusan and the Carthaginian armies were separately beaten by Appius Claudius in two battles. Hiero retired hastily to Syracuse, in the words of Polybius, filled with foreboding for the final outcome while the Carthaginians retreated to lick their wounds and prepare for the next season's campaign. After receiving an influx of reinforcements in the following year, whose crossing the Carthaginian navy once again failed to prevent, the Romans besieged Syracuse. Hiero was too good a politician to fight a hopeless battle, and he hastily came to terms with the Roman army. In exchange for releasing his prisoners and paying a light indemnity, Hiero made peace with the Romans and agreed to keep them well supplied with food and other materials for their campaigns. Since the Romans lacked a navy, this alliance with Syracuse was a critical necessity to prevent their forces from becoming cut off on the island. Now, they could turn their attention to Carthage in the west. With the withdrawal of Syracuse from the war, the long-awaited showdown between Carthage and Rome had arrived. Despite the mutual distrust and suspicion, probably neither the Romans nor the Carthaginians were over-eager to go to war with each other. We have no record of any overt warmongering by a political group from either side and there were several opportunities for them to have avoided bringing on the conflict, such as when Hanno offered to negotiate a ceasefire following the skirmish on the Straits of Messina. Though neither side overtly desired war, neither had the will to avoid the conflict either. Instead, each side defaulted into war rather than deliberately seeking it out. Whether or not the First Punic War was inevitable is still a matter for debate, but with the landing of Roman troops in Sicily and the first crossing of swords, there was no going back. For Rome, Sicily was just too close to her new acquisitions in southern Italy to be secure in the hands of another, while for Carthage, western Sicily had been part of her home soil for 150 years. Thus, once again, Sicily had become a battleground for the greater powers surrounding her. Cassius Dio, 
a Roman historian from the 2nd century AD, sums up the causes of the First Punic War in the following manner. As a matter of fact, the Carthaginians, who had long been powerful, and the Romans, who were now growing more rapidly stronger, kept viewing each other with jealousy, and they were led into the war partly by the desire of continually acquiring more, in accordance with the instinct of the majority of mankind, most active when they are most successful, and partly also by fear. Both sides alike thought that the one sure hope for their holdings lay in obtaining also those of others. If there had been no other reason, it was most difficult, if not impossible, for two free peoples, powerful and proud, and separated from each other by a very short distance considering the swiftness of the voyage, to rule alien tribes and yet be willing to keep their hands off each other. But it was a chance incident of the following nature that broke their troops and plunged them into war. So begins the First Punic War. Next time, we will follow the course of the war which these two superpowers had drifted into, and how what began as a minor dispute in northwestern Sicily boiled over into a large-scale conflict which would become one of the longest and costliest wars of antiquity. Until then, take care and read more history. History.